exactly to what you're saying. I'm seeing people say like, use this tool for your mental health, like use this AI chatbot for this very personal scenario. Um, I recently wrote a blog post one year in, I still don't use ChatGPT. Here's how it's going. Because the very first and only time I used ChatGPT, I was using it in a context where I was like, ooh, maybe I could ask it this like really challenging interpersonal question that I'm having with this friend that I'm in, a, I'm having this conflict with. And as I was having this conversation, I was like, I'm literally just telling this website like really personal information about me and my friend. And immediately, kind of freaked out. It was like, wait, I can't, this is, this is scary. And I don't want to do this because it's designed to play like chatbots are designed to play on that, that desire. And so thinking through even the, like, what are the impacts of us as humans interfacing with a chatbot every day? My name is Scope Nittling, and this is the Mechanical Inc. Podcast, a podcast about open source, the open web, sustainability, and those who want to make the web and the world a better place. Hey, Liv, and welcome to the Mechanical Inc. Podcast. Thank you. I'm super excited to be here. Yeah, I mean, I worked at Mozilla for almost 12 years, and I don't think we ever met, which is just so weird. It's so weird. Yeah, because it, it's got such a community feel to it, too. Uh, but I'm super happy to be able to chat and connect now. Yeah, yeah. I've also spoken to so many folks after I've left that has then got some connection back to Mozilla. Either it turns out they also worked there and we just never met because maybe they were on the foundation side and I was on the, corp the corporation side, right? So maybe we didn't quite cross paths or they know somebody who works at Mozilla. It's interesting how these, how small, how small a world it is, even though it's so big. Yes, I, I think if you work on technologies that touch the internet, odds are pretty good that you cross paths either with Mozilla yourself or a Mozillian, uh, which speaks to the impact that the organization's been able to have in the last 25 years. Yeah, that's for sure. Anyhow, um, with all of that out of the way, I would love for you to do an introduction of yourself, who you are, how you got where you are today, as much as you'd like to share. Um, and then, as I mentioned just before the call, I like to read people's little taglines on LinkedIn, and I really digged yours, and I said, like, I'd love to know more. <laughs> so if you can, like, dig into that, I'll just read it out so people know. Um, your tagline today, on when we recorded, says, innovation strategist and creative technologist focusing on the future of the internet. Yeah, um, so my name is Liv Erickson. I... Um, as you just mentioned, uh, a creative technologist and tech policy advocate focused on innovation strategy around the future of the web. Uh, I work for Mozilla Innovation, and I am the ecosystem development lead there, which means my responsibility is jumps between program management and engineering and DevRel. And I tend to wear a lot of different hats looking at how various open source projects and communities and startups, new businesses, individuals are all contributing to the future roadmap of, and shaping the way that the internet is evolving. So as you can imagine right now, there's a lot of focus on AI and the impact that 
machine learning technologies are having in shaping our online experience. And the way that I have kind of come to this role has been through a variety of wearing a variety of different hats. I love to get hands on with new technologies. I worked in the um, 3D XR space for quite a bit of time before starting to learn about artificial intelligence. I have this kind of quippy uh, phrase that I, I've been using, which is uh, AI is the future of back end and spatial is the future of front end. Because while we like to draw all these different lines between the specific technological components of what the future of the internet looks like. Ultimately, we're just on this very fast moving path of the devices we're using and the compute power available to us is rapidly growing and evolving. And what I am trying to do through my work is understand how we can shape that in a way that gives people agency over what they're producing, um, the ability to have a positive and joyful community-driven experience that is really for them and built with them, not necessarily built to be used as like a consumer end product. So my work uh, sometimes jumps back and forth between getting hands-on with building some prototypes for new projects, which I think we'll get into, and also looking at this from a societal impact and trying to challenge some of the assumptions that people make about how much agency they really have over their online experience. Yeah, that's great. And that's a bunch of like really, really important topics. One of the ones that, that you mentioned that I just want to dig into a little bit, which is mm -hmm. kind of not on the serious side, more on the like, just, I wonder what you think about it. Vision Pro, is this, is this heralding something new? Because the interesting thing is, like they say, like every new technology, like the iPhone, the thing that really made the iPhone popular was the App Store right um when it just came out it was this weird little thing that people kind of bought because it was interesting new and different um but it, it wasn't great really the first iphone was pretty crappy um and then it iterated iterated a bit and then when the app store came that was really the thing that made it like whoa i see i see what this thing is now and the interesting thing like i've watched a bunch of people um talk about like, you know, unboxing the, the Vision Pro and showing it. And obviously the person that I found the most valuable from watching is uh, Marcus Brownlee, MKBHD. Um, and the interesting thing is, even the other people that I watched, the, the most useful app they found is the Safari web browser, which is interesting because there's quite a few like things you would have expected would be in Vision Pro that's not like Netflix. There's no Netflix app. Like Disney's done a thing, but Netflix hasn't. But you could watch Netflix in the Safari browser. So that made me wonder, like, what does this mean for the future that the first most popular app of the Vision Pro is a browser? I think that it's, it's really spot on to the content analogy. Uh, people want to discover things. They want the freedom to find something interesting, to use the tools that they're used to using, not worry about the space that they're maybe downloading, um, especially content to, especially on a new device that may not have a huge amount of storage space. I actually don't, uh, haven't tried the uh, Vision Pro yet myself. So the specs are not on top of my top of mind for me, but 
what what I've seen, so my first four years at Mozilla were actually working on our WebXR uh, tools for um, enabling content creators to build spaces that were deployed through the browser. And this was exactly why. It was because as these new headsets were coming online, people wanted content, but creation, the creation pipeline for building a spatial app takes a long time. In some cases, you don't actually need full 3D immersion. You just kind of want a little bit more immersion than you may already have. There's this huge spectrum depending on what you're trying to do. And the browser is such a fast way to iterate and deploy and publish content that it doesn't surprise me to think that that's how people are using uh, the Vision Pro and what will help people start to bridge their experiences using a flat or increasingly curved monitors like we're, we're already starting to inch our way there with the devices regardless of whether we're in full headset mode or not um and bridge that to an experience that's familiar for them but i think that that discoverability and increasingly for me um, customization capabilities that the browser offers really speaks to the type of interactions that people are either they know they want them or they don't know that they want those interactions, but they know it's really convenient that I can get all my documents on any computer if I just sign through the browser. Um, and I think that that's a very compelling and important platform for people who are building content for any type of new spatial device. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out because, you know, um, I think it, as I said, like, Apple is making a big bet with this. It's it's an expensive experiment, you know, making and yeah. shipping the, that device. Um, and obviously, they've probably thought about this a bit. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Um, but moving on. <laughs> so yeah. why I initially reached out to you, and then I started looking at more things. I was like, there's so much more to talk about. But let's, let's talk about the initial thing. Was this thing project called Memory Cache? which if people just hear that, they think, is this a new kind of Redis? And it's like, no, it's not. Um, it's something completely different. Uh, so with that, I'm going to just hand it over to you and just tell us more about Memory Cache. Yeah, so Memory Cache is an experimental project that I started working on a few months ago within the Mozilla Innovation team that looked at the way we could build small, personalized, and kind of weird AI for ourselves. And we launched the initial project in uh, mid-December um, and the reception was positive, I think, which speaks to some of the goals that we had for the project really resonating with how people feel in this age of AI. So I'll go back and give a little bit of context. Um, about memory cache and kind of how it started, which was a, almost a year ago now, I started really looking into some of the challenges and what I think are still concerns of really massively scaled AI systems being deployed in scenarios that deal with personal data and information. Um, about this time a year ago was when a lot of my classmates were starting to use ChatGPT for course assignments and the power of AI 
was not lost on me. I, I often say I'm not anti-AI. I'm anti like corporate monopolized AI because there's so much power that can come from using statistics at the scale that AI offers. Um, but the risks of who is in control of these systems and what they're doing with the information are the challenges and risks that the internet's generally been facing for several uh, years, um, if not longer. And so when I started thinking about what my ultimate desire for an AI would look like, the analogy that I came up with was the droids from Star Wars. I'm a huge Star Wars fan. Uh, and the way that droids are represented in Star Wars is like, yeah, you have the kind of pre-made droids that follow their scripts and their you know, acting on behalf of a very specific task that they've been trained to do. But then you also have the people who go out and build their R2-D2s and their C-3PO's. And um, that model of, I want a droid that I build to be my AI, really stuck with me. And something that tends to happen a lot in my experience with like product development is you want to understand a market and a consumer and a business model before you invest in a really big project. But I was looking at what was happening at a macro level with development trends in AI and realized that with all of these new capabilities that we're getting access to through these consumer AI apps, the threshold of knowledge that you have to have as an individual developer is getting pushed further and further out. So my, my undergraduate degree is in computer science, but I generally don't do any kind of systems programming. I haven't until recently worked on an operating system before. Um, I was very much in the application space. And so I started thinking like, what are the first things I wanna do with an AI? And I realized I was constantly forgetting things that I had just read. Um, and so I started working on memory cache when I came across private GPT and realized, oh, there's a lot of power in being able to run a local AI language model on my computer. I have a desktop computer that runs private GPT and a 7B. Uh, really, at, at this point, it's been deprecated for like six months, but I still use it, uh, model. And I just feed it source documents and everything I write um, and publish, my private notes that I take when I'm in meetings, my browsing history, when I finish an article, I save it to uh, with memory cache to my local AI. Um, and then when I want to then query some of the things that I've, I've been reading recently. Um, it was important to me that I wasn't just kind of offloading that to the AI to do the thinking for me. So I've intentionally left my older version of uh, Groovy is the model that I'm using. It's one of the uh, derivative models. Um, and I'm, I'm, for, I'm blanking on the exact data set, but uh, that's easy. It's easily found on the memory cache website and it's weird. Like it's not polished. It makes incomplete sentences, but that's part of its 
charm is that it's still, it does that because it's coming up with these weird synthesis pieces of the things that I am actually looking at and reading. Um, I think there's a lot of really great work out there if you want a correct answer, but what's not as structured and understood in human cognition is what are those things that cause those little sparks of insight? What are the weird ways you connect like a principle of a business model to a principle of an AI language model? And the AI is like, oh, they both say models, so they're related, even though they're not necessarily. But then a human who has domain knowledge of both of those things can start to get different ideas about the way that material might be related. So uh, memory cache is really a first attempt at exploring how we can do kind of more creative insight generation for each individual person because they have full control over the system. They're deciding what they put into it. They're deciding if they want to um, link together thoughts on design systems and the socioeconomic state of the world that they're living in um, or not. And that creates these very different contexts for the language model to respond in, which I think is a very interesting and weird and quirky way of using AI technology um, that's really kind of different from what I've seen elsewhere out in the world. Amazing. So, so, so it's a cache for your human memory, essentially. So what it boils yes. down to, right? Um, so, <laughs> yes. And you need to run this on a separate machine, right? You can't run this on the machine that you're physically using right now, or can you run it at the same time? You can run it at the same time. Um, I run it on the machine that I'm using to talk to you. I actually thought about booting it up, but having the webcam stream, I, I use a 4K webcam and my uh, AI language model. I was a little afraid of what that would do for my uh, compute. But yeah, I run it um, right now. I run memory cache on my uh, desktop that has a 30, I think it's a 3080 in it. Um, so pretty good graphics card but I can run it while I'm also, you know, working on a Google Doc in the browser. And um, I'll use it often as a thought partner for how I might want to brainstorm an answer to a question or um, think about how I might synthesize some different topics that I've been researching recently, but I might not have a starting vocabulary to put the idea together. Um, and being able to run it directly on my machine is super valuable. Yeah, because that means you can do it offline, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. And none of the files are going anywhere other than my local desktop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I've I've tried the local thing yet, but for me, like I probably need to run it on a separate machine just because my like I have a, a Mac. MacBook, but not but an Air uh, with the M2 chip, but it's only got eight gigs of RAM, so it struggles. You know, if you spin up spin up an elevator, even if you run Whisper, for example, to transcribe some audio, um, mm -hmm. uh, it's heavy. It, yeah, <laughs> but it, it eats, eats it quite quick. But I mean, um, what? So because let's jump into one of the questions that I, that I had. Um, this is what I meant when I said we'll jump around, we might touch on everything. Yeah. So, because one of the things that I'm wondering about, so the, so one of the ways to bridge the problem of 
hardware is to go to the cloud, right? Because there yes. you can get you can get whatever you need, pretty much. Um, of course, there again, money is going to play a role because it's not free. Um, but for example, Hugging Face makes that very accessible. Like, I mean, if I so I use a lot of the Hugging Face spaces to do a bunch of stuff, but sometimes you know they're super busy or whatever the case may be, and then I have a, a fork of it that I can quickly spin up. And I mean, in general, it takes a minute or two, and then I can do what I need to do, and then I leave it. It goes to sleep. And it costs me like a dollar or dollar fifty a month, you know, here and there, because mm -hmm. I don't use it quite a lot. But um, but the thing is, again, you're now in the cloud, which means that, like you said, the cool thing with memory cache is you're running on your local machine. You can use it offline, which is great, because for a lot of folks who don't have reliable internet, that's lovely. It's like my internet's down, but I can still access my, my LLM to help me with my work. The other thing, of course, is the privacy aspect of it, right? Um, you don't have to be so concerned about what you feed it because, oh, but what if this leaks? How does it even work with AI if this leaks? Like, how how, how does the box look inside? We don't know. Um, yeah. So, so what is there a way? Because I know people are talking about looking at turns out we don't need these massive models. Like that was a good initial experiment, but turns out for every little task that we need to do, we probably don't need the big, big, big thing like OpenAI runs and these kinds of things. So people are experimenting with smaller and smaller models. But right now, today, kind of what is the hardware situation? Like what do you really need to be able to use this, even uh, uh, either on a like separate laptop or desktop or whatever, or as part of your, well, let, let's focus on that. I mean, I think it makes it easier. So if you had to go out and you say, okay, I just want to get a machine that I can run my local memory cache on, like what are, what are the kind of specs that you're, that you're looking at? It's a great question. And I am not, I don't think I'm going to have a very good answer for it, just given the state of the project right now. Um, and the reason I say that is because I am not an AI engineer or developer by trade. I am still using a model that is in the GGML format, which was deprecated, I think, in May of last year. Um, and I have not done any kind of optimization to run it even on a, on the GPU. Like mine still runs on CPU. I think I have a an Intel, uh, I want to say it's like a 87 series, like the 87 series. So like it's probably like five or six years old CPU. Um, and I am not a, I'm not a super versed in hardware. Um, but one of the things that I think was so critical for me in putting this project together initially was to even prove that there was demand for smaller local models. Uh, Simon Willison has talked quite a bit about and written quite a bit about the models he's able to run on his iPhone. And I think that that's a really interesting uh, data point because right now I'd say like memory cache is not optimized at all. So any answer I could come up with for memory cache and the fork of private GPT that I'm running is not at all trying to be up to the latest um, and optimized for as much use as possible. Um, that said, we're actively working on that piece now um, and looking at the different 
mechanisms for optimizing performance across different platforms because um, even the question of like the uh, chipset vendors is going to come into play about whether or not a particular AI solution works locally. Um, you know, your point about the cloud is absolutely right. And some people may just never want to run these systems on their own machine. They may always just want to be doing it on the cloud and that's totally fine. The thing that I think is most important about these types of projects that are really looking to give people options to do their AI work locally is that that becomes an option and people start to see the demand and communities form around that particular approach to computing. Um, I think for something like memory cache, it's going to be that type of application is one that feels like it can be made to run on a much lighter weight machine than something that's dealing heavily with, you know, generating video or is doing image generation or a lot of audio processing. Um, just because one of the things that we're building into our design system for memory cache is the ability to generate the insights from your documents when you're not using uh, your computer. So if you leave your machine running, are there ways we can smartly use the idle time to do some of this upfront so that we're not trying to do a heavy compute process at the same time that you're on a Zoom call, for example. Um, and so we have a really great designer on the team who's been starting to think through those different modalities and what it actually means to get a really good insight. Like, can we start to preemptively figure out what people are likely to be caring about and create this kind of stream of new ideas they can think about using their computer when they're not so that we're able to kind of move away from this idea that AI has to be this chat interface with an immediate response, but instead go back to the way humans think. It's like, we don't have flashes of insight constantly on demand. It's Oh, I was, you know, uh, the shower thought is a perfect example of this term that's been coined of when you let yourself relax and take a step back, that can be when some of the magic happens. And I love the idea of applying that to AI. Um, the other thing that I'll just say that excites me a lot about this space is seeing work being done around community AI and if one person in a community has the knowledge and means to build a local AI computer that can then be shared, we start to get back to more of this historic model of the personal computer and how uh, people share resources on a network. And so that's also really exciting to me to think about. Maybe it's not someone's personal machine, but their, um, their apartment building has a share or their office has a shared AI system so that there's that level of local community trust built into access to those systems, kind of like a federated um, decentralized model and applying that to the hardware space. Yeah, that's, that's, that's super. I mean, some things that, that came up to me uh, while you were talking about that is uh, there's that thing called, uh, I think it's called computer in a box, something like that, 
where you, it's like this big open source thing, um, where basically if you're somewhere where you don't even have internet access, you put this thing down and it's got Wikipedia on it, it's got a whole bunch of stuff, it's all offline, right? But you can access it through a browser, like it's it's over a local network kind of thing, you don't need internet access for that. And then obviously somebody needs to update it periodically to keep the information up to date. But at least you're not cut off from from the world, right? You you have access to this this vast amount of knowledge that that's available on the internet um and then the other thing i was thinking about is the protein folding project uh where you could mm -hmm. donate uh, idle time so if you go to sleep at night and your computer sits there like it could be running on your machine doing work and you know help help solve something meaningful um and the larger topic around that and why i wanted to bring that up is like right when the whole thing happened last year where it was like whoa ChatGPT, everything's going to change um i i had this like moral thing <laughs> to deal with and i wasn't sure like how what do you think about this you know i was like oh great this is exciting but it's scary i think some of it was also just narratives from people um kind of singing or sounding the, the, the alarm bells and saying this is the end of this career and that career opportunity and this and that and I was like wow that is I, I interact with a lot of junior developers and I saw that it was affecting them they were like oh my goodness did I just start learning something that I now have no future in um, and then it struck me that there was this period of time where we talked about the digital divide um, where there's the people that have internet access and there are those that don't. And it, it creates the situation of, again, those that have and those that have not. And it comes down to very practical things, you know, like access to, to jobs, access to lift yourself out of poverty, all that kind of stuff. And I was like, is this bringing in a new digital divide? And that is something that I was really worried about. And I'm still worried about it. And that's why I'm... I was so interested in this memory cache because I'm like, okay, so this paves the way for enabling more people to have access to this, even if you can only, you know, enabling you to run your local machine. That is the idea. Like you can run this on an iPhone. That's amazing. Well, not necessarily memory cache, but I mean, you know, people are thinking about that. There, There is a world in which that is possible, right? Because for a lot of people, like in Africa, for example, that's how they access and do everything is on their mobile phone right so if they could run some some kind of model on their phone and get the benefit of ai on that that is incredibly empowering but the other side of it is if we don't think about that and we don't address that concern then it means these people are left out while the rest of the world's moving forward they're standing still and in some way they're slowly moving backwards again and now they have to start playing catch up so i think that that's why i brought up this whole idea so i wasn't really expecting that you would necessarily list out the specs for me if you could have done that that would have been cool but that wasn't what i was expecting it was kind of just this idea of thinking about like if i'm going out to to the electronic store this weekend and i want to buy a machine that i can run the stuff on what would that be but the larger thing is like is it still going to be uh you know a mac with like m2 chip and these kinds of things but with your answer was exactly what i was hoping to hear it's like to some extent yes but we are thinking about the fact that that is a problem in itself and we need to address that um so that's me talking a lot but i would love your thoughts around this whole idea of this whole like digital divide and like how do we 
yeah. ensure that we don't exclude people from this amazing technology. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think that the phrase that I heard that was build with, not build for, is something that's really stuck with me in my career as I think about product strategy um, and technology strategy. Every business has, like a for-profit business has an incentive and the incentive is to grow profits for their shareholders. A company that makes a huge amount of its revenue by selling massive amounts of cloud compute or access to developers to use that compute to build services is not going to necessarily run, go out of their way to make it free and easy to run those services on any kind of device that someone might have. So when I was building memory cache and thinking about this um, really early on, I pushed back against using cloud services for AI, not because I don't, I, like, I think there's a use, there's plenty of valid use cases for it. And it's not that I think that the cloud itself is like this inherently evil way of building technology. It's that it incentivizes a certain type of development behavior. It incentivizes certain types of people to be able to build it. And nothing gets me more excited than when someone hears about memory cache and is like, oh, I feel like, okay, I could maybe set that up. Like I could maybe do that. And it can be this, I think local AI can be this opportunity for inspiring digital literacy and curiosity and feel a little bit more agency in the way that we relate back to computers and technology in general in a time where a lot of services that we use, we kind of feel stuck in. We feel like, oh, we have to use this because that's just the way that the internet is. Um, I was listening to a podcast recently that was talking about like building healthy relationships with the internet. And 75% of the podcast was about Twitter. And I was like, that's not the internet. That's the internet is not just Twitter. There's so much more out there, but the view of technology for so many people has narrowed and what they feel like they can do with it has narrowed because a very reasonable challenges related to safety and uh, sandboxing applications to keep people's information private as the amount of information we're putting out there and building about ourselves grows, so are the malicious actors who are looking to profit from that. And so when I think about the new digital divide with AI, it's very, it's not lost on me that there's a narrative around how challenging it is to build with AI, uh, that the terminology about the latest trends in AI is like really hard to follow, even if you are actively building a product in the space that uses AI. And that's one reason why memory cache is using this almost year old technology. Um, it's because it's, it's very challenging to actually navigate like exactly what's happening at each of these layers. Am I interfacing with this company or this company or this company? Um, and that is a business strategy. It's the moat that people are building. Uh, information in this today, like today's internet age is 
the moat that people can build. And so when I think about countering that, working in open source, working in the public, sharing the things, the messy details about the thought process that got from like, here's some vague ideas I have about robots and what if robots were our model for AI systems to here's a Firefox extension I built. And yeah, I'm starting with a Firefox extension because that's what I know how to build can be really empowering and helping people understand that just because people say like, oh, you have to use this new technology, like you don't. <laughs> and I was, at a, I was at a really good panel last week or the week before about the impact that generative AI has on labor recognition, specifically in the art fields. And some of the themes that we're coming up with that are that the challenges with generative AI, they're, they're kind of moving who has power. Um, I think about like the lawsuits with journalists and the companies that are taking all their data and now using AI to generate new content and answers. Um, and in those conversations, the person who's being left out of that is the author who actually wrote the content to begin with. Um, and so that to me reflects this shift in power dynamics of the large tech companies who have the infrastructure to run these massive scale models and do these, um, these types of activities and release the applications. Um, people who have uh, organizations that have historically had power over the individuals and then there's still the individuals who are sitting there like, hey, well, like, how do I make sure that my name is protected, my identity is protected? And I see working on local small AI as being that step to keeping right to your content, keeping right to your identity, being able to utilize the tools and the benefits of these systems but without going through so many layers of other people who are taking your data and figuring out ways to profit off of it uh, in a very asymmetric manner right now. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, that is that has become super opaque, right? I think there's quite a lot of talk now about this whole um, thing about, it's this multi-layered tech sandwich um, of if you think Vercel and you're like, no, but I'm using Vercel. It's like, yeah, you're still using AWS, by the way. It's just sandwiched on top, right? In the end of the day, a lot of the services you use, all they do is they take something lower and make it more user-friendly and they put it higher up and higher up in the stack. And the thing is it, it sometimes it gets incrementally more and more expensive. Um, the higher up the stack you go, the more user-friendly the thing is, the higher the cost. And it's literally because the one below them is already paying the downstream to build a product on top of it. So they need to then add their bit and then the next one, you know, and it goes up and up and up. So same thing with like OpenAI and these kinds of things. I mean, they're running on Azure for, for a lot of it, you know, which is Microsoft. So eh, there's that. Um, and Microsoft has a benefit from that because now they get to use all the latest and greatest that comes out of OpenAI just straight up in all their products. Um, very complicated, very weird thing. I'm, I'm glad people are talking about it. Um, and then I, I learned about these egress fees. I never knew about that. So if you want to move from one cloud provider to the next one, like getting your data out is so expensive that it's better to just stay where yeah. you are. And then there's the European Union that's trying to do something to like nullify that. Like, no, they can't charge you if you want to move from one to the other. So 
it's a very complex situation, but it's good that people yeah. are talking about it. But the th- what something you mentioned there was this identity and you, how do I keep my name connected to this thing and how do I keep what's my intellectual property kind of mine? Um, this is an interesting year, which is weird to say because since 2020, it feels like every year has been just an interesting year. <laughs> but yes. What's, <laughs> what's interesting about this year is there's quite a few elections happening. And I mean, you know, there's a couple mm-hmm. of really big ones that people are looking at. Interestingly enough, the one that's happening in South Africa has also been mentioned, which I was surprised by. I didn't think so many people were that interested, but okay. Um, but of course, the one in the US is a big one, right? Um, and of course, AI has been talked about a lot here because, I mean, I guess this is on the backdrop of what's happened in 2016 and all of that stuff when Cambridge Analytica came out and the whole debacle there and Russian hacking and all these kinds of things. Like, if that happened then and there's these tools now, how are we going to deal with all this stuff? And then last night, I saw the announcement about OpenAI's new video thing, uh, Sora. Thankfully, that's not released yet. They're still red teaming and all that kind of stuff. But I mean, if if you look at, as, they, as everybody is showing, like the whole um, uh, spaghetti eating video from a year ago um, with Will Smith, and then you look at what Sora proposed, says that it can do, it's you can't even compare those two things. It's like, it's above and beyond where we were a year ago. And so, I don't know, this is just an open question, like just your thoughts around this, like how the heck do we do we deal with all this fact that you can so easily now replicate somebody else either in a static image, like produce a static image that looks so real that you're like, hey, look, there's a thing that exploded at the Pentagon, that happened. Um, the whole thing with Biden's voice calls where he's like telling people not to go vote in a preliminary or something like that. And then this crazy stuff now with the video where like Sora can generate up to a minute long. Now, if you could do a 30 second clip of some world leader saying something that's completely fake, but it's next to impossible to tell, how do we even, how can we even know what to trust and believe anymore? And like how, and then regulation, how does that play into it? Uh, this is a complicated topic, so I'm not expecting an answer, just, <laughs> just thoughts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's something that I I think about and it's one of the things that does scare me about the systems that can produce such accurate to human perception results that these massively scaled systems can do. Because at the end of the day, there's gonna be a handful of organizations that can even do anything to counter that because of how much compute it takes to produce the original image. Um, So there's a lot of conversation within Mozilla about trustworthy and responsible AI use. Um, And I've been exposed to some ideas about how there are social solutions and there are technical solutions to trust and uh, verification. There's the, the technical solutions, which I think sound really nice and probably do catch a fair amount of 
the upfront harms is things like the filtering on what you can actually use to be in a, you know terms of service some systems protect this much better than others um, and it's not a it's not a fail safe um, even once you have those filters in place there's the risk of prompt injection attacks and being able to break out of the constraints that the developers have put on the particular app such that someone could go through and break that apart and use it for whatever they want. So I wouldn't be surprised at all. In fact, I'll be surprised if we don't see some massive scaled AI video produced with one of these types of tools. Um, so there's kind of that upfront approach. Uh, Columbia University Engineering recently released an article about using multimodal systems to try and help verify content. So using these AI systems to really nitpick a video or an article and go in and break it into all of its component parts and then verify that against a known database of trusted and verified source material to see if that plausibility is true. Um, again, I don't think that, that the technical only solutions are ever the full way that we can um, protect against these types of harms, which is why that digital literacy piece for AI just feels so pressing. It's like, we have to be, I think, really thoughtful about how leaning too much on technological systems and creating the sense of safety that the tech solutions will catch the majority of the problems prevents people from feeling like they need to learn how to be on the lookout. I remember when I was little, I was like, I don't know, maybe like in 10 years old, learning about propaganda for the first time. Like we're taught in school, there are certain types of materials that are meant to get you to think a certain way, even if it's not true. And that kind of education, I think is really important. And one thing that's interesting about this year compared to other years is that we now have like a whole year of examples of people using AI to generate fake content that gets caught. And so people are already very untrusting of what they see, I think. Um, I think the risk is always there's going to be a tale of what is the harm that's done before it's verified false? And what happens like from a psychological perspective when you've already bought into that idea that something was true that you saw because you weren't skeptical about it up front, you bought into the idea that it was so true and then you find out it's fake. Like people don't let go of things they wanna believe that easily. So I think there's also a really big risk of just the cognitive reaction that we have to material and believing something, even if it's a short amount of time and wanting to hold on to that, that feeling that validates us, that validates our perspective or something that we've, we've seen. Um, and that's where I think the social piece really comes in, which is this idea that for so many of the places I get my news now, is through my local community. Like we've gone back to what is my husband sending me? What are my friends sending me? What is my like local discord server talking about 
has happened recently in our community because it is so hard to know where trusted information can come from now. Um, and what I've heard talked about um, in some of the, the space is the idea of, you know, if this trusted, if like five trusted people that I really believe think thought are very thoughtful about the content they're consuming all send me something from different sources that tell the whole story that's gonna give a different layer of my interpretation of the the truthfulness of that story than if I just see someone talking about it on Twitter um so that social element becomes really key and I think what scares me about that piece is, I think, in a lot of places, I mean, I'd speak for the US because that's where I, I am, but the that idea of organizational trust and institutional trust in like pretty much every institution is decreasing. And so I think there's a really big opportunity and need for, especially this year, thinking about elections and politics to like under help people understand how they get involved so that they're learning about things from the sources, not through all these different layers of AI and human narrative, but that takes a lot of effort. That takes a lot of time. So it's definitely something that um, I think will be an ongoing challenge. And I have, I've been frankly impressed that the Federal Trade Commission in the in the U.S. has been publishing articles and educating consumers about AI. Um, Consumer Reports had this really good series that talked about the harm that AI can have and the bias and how it can be used to manipulate. So I think the more that we're seeing regulatory and consumer protective agencies pushing this information and saying like, hey, this is something you need to know about, talk to people about what you're seeing, the more that we can get comfortable talking uh, with other people about ideas that we disagree with in the same spaces and getting back to that ability to have conflict without uh, like kind of aggressively just shutting off the other people and approaching it from genuinely authentic places to connect, we'll start to figure out how the social and community element can protect us from some of the bigger harms of fake information that's being spread out. Yeah, well said. Um, I think it, it's not surprising, but it's interesting to me that it almost all conversations I have come back to community and the power that lies within community. Um, and it, I mean, it's unfortunate that for some people, they struggle to find that community, you know, in a safe space online. Um, they're not always sure where to go. I think it, it kind of plays into something else I had in um, in the doc, um, where, I mean, I think Twitter was one of the first examples, I guess, maybe Facebook to some extent before that, but um, 
Substack was one of the ones that recently had this whole thing happen around it where uh, some prominent people left the platform because they're like, oh, there's a, there's a bunch of Nazis here. And uh, the way that the people who address the policies have addressed it is not the way we would have liked them to have addressed this. And so therefore, they kind of say, we've seen this movie before, we're out. And I get that. I totally get that. I understand that. Um, I have some thoughts about that from just from an uh, independent creator single you know one person doing all the work like if you've spent a significant amount of time on a platform and you then need to move it's it's a lot of work just just logistically just it's a lot of work to move all that stuff secondly you're you're challenged by it because you're trying to build a following but you keep moving around and i i told somebody like if you if you take that into the brick and mortar world it, imagine you had a little shop and every three months yeah, your shop is somewhere else. You're going to lose a bunch of customers because people are going to go to the corner of the street and they're like, oh no, where did they go? And now I have to figure out where the heck did they go? They can't find you easily. Um, Self-hosting is an option and something that I'm seriously considering. But again, it's not free, right? It, there's a cost there. And for some people, using something like Substack is free. Um, so you can get your newsletter out there, you can get some content out there, and it doesn't cost you anything um, unless you want to do some stuff like sell things or subscriptions or whatever. But if you just want to use it as a distribution model and a way to be discovered, it's free. Um, so I initially wrote a thing saying I'm leaving Substack. Um, and it's still in my mind to do that. I'm, I'm working on things slowly to be able to do that. But the more I thought about it, the more I was, I started to, think about it a little differently and i was like but what will happen to the internet if every time these not great people join a platform everybody that's trying to do good takes their stuff and leaves will it be that over time all those people will be pushed to the edges of the internet and the bulk of the internet is going to be ruled by people who don't want to see good for the world or only want to see good for a certain specific section of the population and the world. Shouldn't we, and I, I my daughter raised my awareness about this from Agent Carter, uh, where she has this whole quote, essentially, where it ends off by saying, sometimes you need to stand your ground and say, I'm not going, you're going. Um, so I wonder what your thoughts are around this. And then maybe if, like, I think you mentioned a little bit about that from Mozilla, um, thinking about this from the AI perspective. So if maybe you want to like just the broader thing, and then maybe a little bit about what Mozilla is doing around AI and responsible AI and how it plays into this whole thing. Yeah, I, I really liked reading your articles about that kind of conflict because it was very resonated. It resonated a lot for me when I left Twitter and I still actively now almost two years later have times where I am feeling mourning for the community that I had there and the people that I was able to talk to and get updates from regularly and making the decision to leave the platform that it's much harder for me to now find those people and figure out what they're up to. Um, so I'll, I'll start by just say I, I appreciated that how you put that and the the challenges that you wrote about and how you, I think you're spot on that there's a risk with decentralizing where 
communities gather brings this particular narrative, like a particular narrative to the front and center of a platform. Um, I think, you know, I, I mentioned AI and like large scale AI in a, in a different context, but talking through this, like it's a, the statistic algorithm that is behind AI is that it's pulled from, in many cases for these large models, the entirety of the internet and is then being filtered down to a polished perspective from the service provider and being given as like an answer. And I think the root of this challenge may not even be a technical one. There's a resource, you pointed out the resourcing question. That's, that's definitely a big piece of it. Who has capital to deploy a site that can get enough users on it to be appealing to grow as a consumer product? And then how do you make that palatable to an average person in the world? Uh, which is kind of wild to think about the idea that the internet could be distilled, like any internet service could be distilled down to one average person in the world. Um, I think that the benefits of a hosted platform where discoverability of new ideas is possible. Like that is the, the promise of the internet. People come to these sites because there's something they want to learn. There's someone they want to connect with. There's some part of themselves that they want to see in other people. And I think there's this tension of discoverability that is locked into one platform. You can only discover the people or the comments or the content on my platform. But if you come in, if you're all in on my platform, then you get it all. Versus the ability to have a system where you can get super high quality recommendations and discover high quality communities that are secure and safe and reflective of what someone might want to be learning that come from all over the web. And I actually think that personal AIs can maybe help with some of that. I think that there's promise in the idea that I could define an AI agent that I let the rest of the world interact with and kind of broadcasts me as a person and the things that I care about and other people's agents, you know, in some hypothetical future world, other people's agents that they've also built themselves that aren't being super, super filtered by a third party are able to discover each other. And then that opens up the door for more authentic one-on-one -on -one connections or uh, group connections. And this idea, I think it's speculative. And I, one of the things from Mozilla's trustworthy AI 
exercises that I've come across in the last couple of months that I really love is this idea. Um, Bobby Rakova has coined the term speculative friction, uh, which is this idea of using speculative fiction to tell stories about positive futures for AI. And those futures are grounded in celebratory community and grounded in personal agency and responsibility and choice, deciding when you want to interact with AI versus not, understanding when you're interacting with AI versus not, and using fiction as a tool, not for like warning, don't build this, but like, what are the ways we imagine that these solutions and systems can be better? Um, and because I think, I think in like, just very, very candidly, like people are scared of some of these things. I know I am because we live in a complex human society with a lot of different actors at a scale of connectivity and access to information that we've never had before. And thinking about the ways AI adds to that noise is easy. Thinking about the ways that AI filters that noise feels harder in a lot of cases because it's that typical like cybersecurity challenge where bad actors are going to always be trying to counter whatever the 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 good is coming out of that. Um, and so, you know, I think there's there's the, the way that we kind of talk about trustworthy and responsible AI at Mozilla is the trustworthy side is really looking at what are the principles that Mozilla's taken and applied to the internet over the past 25 years so that it's a force for public good for humans and it's joyful and they can build these amazing businesses and have these creative self-expression opportunities and connect with other people in really deeply meaningful ways. How do we continue to center that as AI tools become a bigger and bigger part of the way that we interact with the web? And then on the responsible AI side, we're looking at how do developers make decisions about the way that they're building technology so that we can try and look at what's happened in the past with social media and bigger uh, systems that also use AI. Like we're saying all of this as it applies to AI as if this is a problem that started last year, but it's not. It's a problem that started so many years ago and it's just now reaching a scale that's very visible. But we we know some of the challenges of building, you know, a, a developer building a an application or service that just funnels up as much data as possible and sends it to Google or whoever's hosting their platform um, without even in some cases realizing what they're doing. I, I, I think about the Facebook pixel as an example of this and how they found it in like hospital websites and patient care websites. And that was not a malicious decision that the hospital made to send their information to Facebook. It was that someone didn't realize exactly what their tracking system would do. And that's something that can be, I think, countered by this, like this responsible AI education and looking at that from the very, I don't, not the very beginning again, we've been doing this for decades, but like the beginning of this consumer wave of AI. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And I think, I think that 
that speaks to maybe a larger thing, which is just responsible computing, responsible how you make things, you know, how you make software, just being responsible. I think it, it's it's all this thing where um, I spoke with some other folks about specifically around um, security and the whole shift left thing. And they say, oh, are we going to continue to just shift responsibility onto the developer? And like, I think the aha moment that came out of that was, no, it's not about who, it's about when. It's like, when do you start thinking about the potential impact of what you're doing? Yeah. And I think the sooner we start thinking about it, the better. It's like with accessibility, web accessibility. If you just think about that from the beginning, it's often easier and less, uh, it costs less if you want to use cost there, than to, after the fact, try to retroactively make something accessible, right? Or make something secure. So it's, yes. it's, so I think thinking about the potential impact of what you're building from the beginning um, and making that part of the stuff that you consider as you consider the system you're building, the new feature you're adding, that kind of stuff. Because I mean, for the last year, everyone has been shoving AI into their products, you know? Um, and I, I don't think because they felt they had to, right? Like it's it's a competitive edge. If we don't do that and our competitor has that, people are going to go to them and not use us anymore. So we need to do this. And one of the fears I've had around that is like how many of these people are even even know how if they're doing it correctly, if what what is the risk that they're putting their users in? The whole thing that you said with the the Facebook pixel, like one way that you can introduce that is by adding a Facebook share button on your page, not knowing that that's not all it's adding to your page. It's bringing in a whole bunch of JavaScript that's doing a lot of other things, you know, and the same with the Twitter button, the same with anything, any of those things. Like if somebody that doesn't know, I just added a share button. What do you mean I'm leaking people's data? Well, turns out it's not yeah. just a literally just a pixel. It's a pixel with a lot of JavaScript that comes with it. So so I think it's that whole thing, right? It's moving responsibility and just thinking through this thing that you're adding or doing or making and thinking about the potential impact on those people who will end up using this thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that right now, you know, I, I come back again to like Simon Willison and prompt his his writings on prompt injection is that anything that takes free text in as an input to an AI system is still subject to this vulnerability that was discovered a year over a year ago now. And there isn't a surefire way of stopping that type of attack from happening. And so often, exactly to what you're saying, I'm seeing people say, like, use this tool for your mental health, like use this AI chatbot for this very personal scenario. Um, I recently wrote a blog post one year in, I still don't use ChatGPT, here's how it's going, because the very first and only time I used ChatGPT, I was using it in a context where I was like, ooh, maybe I could ask it this like really challenging interpersonal question that I'm having with this friend that I'm, in a, I'm having this conflict with. And as I was having this conversation, I was like, I'm literally just telling this website like really personal information about me and my friend. And immediately 
kind of freaked out. It was like, wait, I can't, this is, this is scary. And I don't want to do this because it's designed to play like chatbots are designed to play on that, that desire. And so thinking through even the, like, what are the impacts of us as humans interfacing with a chatbot every day? Like what, we don't know. We don't know what that's, that's going to do. So even like down to the design patterns of how we're engaging with these systems feels, feels like a great opportunity for continued research and uh, um, like QA cycle, like longer QA cycles, but also I think speaks to some of the challenges that we're facing about how fast companies and organizations are expected to move in in the space yeah looking at the potential good side of of all of this right um so interesting that you mentioned mental health because there are so an interesting scenario that I, i spoke to so on another podcast that i have called the mycelium network podcast i speak to a lot of junior developers um giving them just a means to like talk about what it is like you know what are they stressed about what do they enjoy why did why are they, did they get into this whole thing what did they hope to do with with this in in their future and stuff and obviously now i kind of it's almost obligatory for me to bring up the ai thing because it's it's talked about within their circles as a doomsday event you know that they you will not get employment because why would a company pay for a junior dev they'll just buy a co-pilot subscription and there's your junior dev um but the interesting thing was that somebody brought up was how she's find it helpful um is kind of from a mental health perspective because when you're a junior and you've just started somewhere we all struggle with imposter syndrome not just then right through our careers but you know when you're just just joined it it's especially rough and uh one of the things that when that really hits you is when you don't know something and you're not sure that you're not supposed to that it, is it okay for me not to know this is this a stupid question and she feels in those moments going to a chatbot is a good first stop because it feels like this is not going to judge her she's going to ask a question it's going to give her a response you might have to try it out and see if it's actually correct but even then you can go back to it and say i don't quite understand and it's going to try and explain it to you again it's not going to yeah. get frustrated it's not going to pause judgment on you um it's just going to answer your question and try to help you right so there was an interesting use case where it could be beneficial for mental health i would not say outsource your mental health to a chatbot no right no <laughs> i just don't agree with that then right. i also think that because these these um especially the large ones maybe it's not even needed with the large ones but i'm thinking that might be where they are still very useful is big human challenges like the climate crisis like cures yeah. for diseases like cancer that just today we found out people across the road from us their his wife has cancer and i'm like how are we still into that i lost my dad to cancer i lost my um stepdad to cancer you know it's so it's everywhere you know we as as just humans constantly like i worry about it a lot like will it happen to me i've seen whether it happens to people that don't want that and we're still struggling still starting to figure it out right yeah so and then i'm also thinking like early detection systems like for example was there things that if you 
there's, there's a very scary side to this as well, which is mass surveillance, da, da, da. But is there a way that these models could have predicted COVID? Could it have seen certain signs and things and said, hey, here's a pandemic brewing, you better stop this before it happens, right? But then also with other things, like for example, um, with climate, we're seeing more and more uh, natural disasters. And a lot of this hits us really badly because we only find it late, like tornadoes, earthquakes, those kinds of things. The early detection systems are still pretty, pretty rough there. So for me, I think those are maybe the areas where this could be super powerful. And I'd love to know what, what you think about that. Yeah, I think machine learning technologies as a tool, like so many other types of technological systems, are not inherently bad or risky. It's always about how humans use them. And I think you've hit some really great examples of how systems that are designed and really thoughtfully curated and tested by experts to solve the particular problems in their domain is a really, really powerful use of how artificial intelligence can augment our human society in a way that has a lot of benefits. Um, it's very good at detecting patterns from past information and data. And I absolutely think that there are ways of building systems that support all of those um, scenarios and many, many more that we haven't even thought of or talked about here. For me, having an AI system on a personal level helps my personal it helps my mental health because it gives me a safe place to explore my identity and that my ideas and the story that you told about the junior developers spot on like i don't always know or feel comfortable how to ask specific people specific questions but if i can ask a vague question to or even a very specific question to an anonymous pile of data that will give me some answer that gets me thinking about different pieces of the problem that's augmenting my ability to think. I love the idea of a, the A and AI being augmented intelligence instead of artificial intelligence because it's not the system that's ultimately, granted, I understand that is up for debate, but it's ultimately not the computer that is becoming intelligent. It is what are humans doing with this knowledge and information? And so I think some of those areas that I also get really excited about is helping people communicate more effectively um, with each other because they may have different communication styles. Some people might prefer text to video to audio and having ways of seamlessly moving between those between languages is also really compelling. Um, being able to help people learn, you know, doesn't replace the need for really effective teachers, but can help people learn more effectively. And so I think there's so much, there's so much opportunity for AI to do really, really good things. It's not a net negative technology. Where the risk comes in is again, it comes back to how people are using it. What are the incentives for people who have access and control over the systems? And in all of those good scenarios, there are also ones where you have somebody who doesn't have a medical degree telling you, oh, go use my GPT to, you know, diagnose this problem that you're having. And so I think it's just really important when, whenever we talk about AI, 
that we're keeping it contextualized to the fact that there are so many human inputs to this system that we can't just separate the technology or the use case, but also what are the human policies that are causing harms from the way this technology is being deployed and how do we solve those problems so that this use of the, the technology itself becomes more equitable. Yeah. Cycling back to memory cache, how can people get involved with that? Yeah, the best way is uh, check out memorycache.ai and there's links to our GitHub repo. I'll say it's really it's a really early project, very experimental. We're a small team who's looking at various pieces of what it means to build hyper personal, hyper local, kind of quirky and weird like we are as individuals, AI, um, and how to do it in a way that doesn't feel invasive or intrusive. I made a very specific design decision to build it as an extension um, to Firefox because one of the things I love so much about the browser is its customization and not everybody wants AI to be helping them save web pages. Not everybody's working in that context. It doesn't make sense for everyone, but it makes sense for me and it makes sense for some people on my team. So having that uh, extensible framework for a project and releasing it the way we did, which was as a very raw open source project, we're really just looking to connect with other people who care about things like, you know, keeping documents secure. What does it mean to push the limits of local AI? Um, and what types of devices we can get AI into uh, so that it's in control of the user? Um, what are the different ways that we can build tools that help people feel like they are authentically being represented in part of this algorithmic design. Um, I recently heard the term algorithmic participation, which I really love, like rather than thinking about all of these AI algorithms as something that's controlling us, what happens when we invite people in to think about, yeah, it's a little bit, it's more friction to have to do this work yourself to design your own AI, but it's doable with tools like this. And we want to be connected with people who are very interested in kind of exploring that nuanced space right now of recognizing that what works for me for a productivity tool with AI is not going to look the exact same as anyone else. Um, but if you're someone who's excited about the prospect and interested in poking around with it, um, joining us on GitHub, uh, joining the Mozilla AI Discord server are some great ways to get involved and um, we're hoping to have some more uh, updates coming in the next couple of weeks about what our uh, current plans are for how we're thinking about memory cache. But one of the things that I have always just loved about the project from the beginning is that it can be something that is so hyper-personalized that an individual can take it and run with it and do something completely, not completely different, but like in the same vein, but doesn't have to look like what I'm doing with it or what Mozilla uh, innovation is doing with it. Yeah, that's always one of the amazing things with open source is seeing what other people do with yes. it, right? Like using something and it's like, hey, I, I used this thing and I made this and you're like, what? Okay, yeah. I would never have thought of that. I think that is one of the superpowers of open source is just putting something out there and then other people taking it and saying, Mm, I have an idea. This was a cool idea, but if you do this, imagine that. Um, yeah. Uh, so, conscious realities, building human-centered futures in the digital age. 
What does that mean to you? Yes. Yeah. Um, you're the first person who's ever caught it and asked me about it on my website. So this is, this is fun. Um, I, I love writing. Um, I am working on a book. The book is called Conscious Reality. <laughs> um, and it's very early in the process. I've got some outlines. I've got some pages and passages coming together. But like most things that I do, uh, projects kind of start very broad and then pieces of them make themselves filled in. And uh, Conscious Realities is kind of the umbrella that I'm using right now to bridge a lot of the different things that I've done over the past decade of my career, spanning XR technologies, 3D and AI, to talk about a lot of the concepts that we've covered here, things like um, what is the idea of a reality in a world where everybody has this very specific, hyper-specific relationship to technology and the world through the services that they're using, the devices that they're using, the way that they feel or don't feel empowered to break outside of a particular narrative that they've been told they're a part of, and looking at that through the lens of um, storytelling um, looking at that through the lens of identity and our relationship to our communities and the stories that we're told about our relationship to technology, um, and then really pushing to make sure that there are more stories and examples to go back to that speculative friction concept that are illustrating an optimistic future for this, because it is so easy for us as humans to get caught up in the negatives and the the challenges to us as individuals in society are really very real when we get stuck in those those spaces and we don't feel like we have autonomy and we don't feel like we have agency if we feel like we're just going through the motions and I've experienced that a lot in my 20s and into my early 30s and struggling with anxiety and depression and wanting to help create more artifacts that paint that optimistic, hey, actually, here are ways that things can be beautiful and we can refine and rediscover our agency because I felt like I had lost that for quite a few years working in a very Silicon Valley type headspace. Um, and so my hope is that when, my first hope is I get the book written at some point. And usually the way I could do that is by putting a blurb about it on my blog and then it becomes real and I fill it in over time. Um, actually recently, uh, within the last three weeks, actually wrote the first draft of the outline. So it's feeling more real now than it has before. Um, but if nothing else, I want to just keep encouraging people through my work, regardless of what form it's taking, that there are these beautiful moments of connection and collaboration and creativity that are being found and discovered every day and that it's within our own individual agency to, to find that, but also recognizing you know, that it can be very challenging to do so and trying to find ways of encouraging more of that. Yeah, that's a beautiful way to end it, I think. Um, I resonated with a lot of stuff you said there, and I would love to read this when it comes out. Um, yeah. 
Thanks so much, Liv, for joining me uh, for the conversation. It was it was amazing. It was far-reaching. It's everything I hoped it would be, and then a lot more. Um, thanks for all the stuff you do. Thanks for like just the way you think about technology and all you know, talking about it and spreading all everything. I don't know everything you do. It's awesome. I love it. Thanks so much for joining me. It was a great conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Mechanical Inc. podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, share it with your friends. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Have something to add? Continue the conversation on GitHub and join the community on Slack. Until the next one, keep all the things open.